Well, if you're new to us, my name is Dave Furman. I serve as one of the elders here at Redeemer, and we've been studying for the past few months now the Sermon on the Mount. So today is actually really finishing the halfway point. We're finishing the 10th sermon in what will be a 20-week sermon series. Though we're going to take a little bit of a break for a bit. Next week, Glenn Jones, Pastor Glenn, will preach his last sermon while on staff at our church. Then we'll move into our Christmas series. In January, we'll have an exciting new six-week series we'll tell you about soon. And then in February, we'll kick back to the Sermon on the Mount for the next and the last 10 weeks as we finish off chapter 5 and move in to chapters 6 and 7. But it is great to, to see you all here uh, this morning as we tackle and look into another sensitive topic. So we've been looking at anger. We've looked at adultery and lust. And then today, we're looking at divorce. I wonder what comes to your mind when you think about divorce. It might bring up a variety of emotions in your heart. And divorce has wrecked lives. Many marriages end in hurt and even anger. Last week, I read a news story with the headline, Texas woman's divorce ends in explosion of wedding dress felt 15 minutes away. Now, rather than throwing her wedding dress away, Kimberly Stittler loaded it up with 10 kilograms of explosives. She held a big divorce party, invited her family and friends, and then pulled the trigger of a loaded gun. Now, friends, this only happens in Texas, by the way, if you're wondering. And she hit that dress with her first shot, setting up a massive explosion felt 30 kilometers away. Some marriages end in exploding wedding dresses. The anger is real, and rightfully so. At the same time, divorce shouldn't shock us anymore. There was another article this time in the Gulf News this summer titled, Rising Arab Divorce Rates Are a Cause for Concern. It cited that the number of divorce cases in the region has grown exponentially in recent years. In the UAE, divorces often happen early in the marriage. 50% of divorces happen in the first three years. 28% of divorces happen before the first anniversary. In Kuwait, statistics show that 60% of all marriages end in divorce. And when I speak of divorce this morning, I'm including with it cases which might be under the guise of separation or annulment in your culture. Those are often creative ways of divorcing without calling what it is. Even in the Philippines, which is the last country in the world outside of the Vatican that doesn't allow divorce, bills are in motion to allow what's been happening in other ways to be made finally official. Now, divorce is the norm. And that means many of us have been drastically affected by it. And this might be a sensitive topic for you because you've been painfully divorced. Or you've been hurt by your parents' divorce and feel great pain. You're a child or a youth, and every time your parents have conflict, you're afraid it's going to end in divorce. Perhaps you and your spouse have verbally threatened each other with ending the marriage. Or you've divorced someone and you feel guilty. 
Let me say something else before we jump into the text. Whether divorce was your fault or not, hear, hear me say this before we jump into our scripture today. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Let me repeat that one more time. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. It's not. Even if you've been in divorce in a sinful way, it's not on par with the unforgivable sin of blasphemy. Now, if you're here this morning and you're divorced, you don't have a big D on your forehead that lights up every time we see you. We don't look at you and see divorcee. If you're a Christian, if you follow Christ, if Christ is in you, when we see you, when we talk to you, when we look at you, we see someone whom Christ died for. That's what we see. That's what God sees. Divorcees are not second-class citizens in God's eyes or in our eyes. You may have regret from a past marriage. I want you to know there's grace and forgiveness in Christ. There's hope. Well, you may be single and thinking, well, Pastor Dave, how does this apply to me? I'm not even married. I've never been married. Well, here's how. I don't know anybody in their singleness who has said, someday I want to be married for a bit and then get divorced. Someday I want to be married. I, want to, I would love to be married and then be a divorced man or woman one day. That's my goal in life. Nobody says that. And yet it happens to so many. Youth and singles, divorce applies to you too. Prepare yourself now in order to avoid that reality later. And all of us have friends and married couples. We have a responsibility as Christians to pray and encourage them to help protect them from divorce. We all need this sermon. What does Jesus say about divorce? Well, here's the main point this morning. One main point. Jesus takes divorce seriously because he takes marriage seriously, and so should you. Jesus takes divorce seriously precisely because he takes marriage seriously, and so should you. That's the the main point this morning. And under that, I'm going to ask us three questions, and those three questions will serve as our outline today. We'll take them one at a time. So question number one. Why is divorce serious? Look at chapter 5, verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Jesus is referring to the Old Testament passage, Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. The point of those verses is that if a man divorces his wife, he must give her a certificate of divorce. If she then becomes another man's wife and is divorced again, that first man can't remarry her. That sounds a bit odd at first reading, but we need to understand the context of this old law. It wasn't uncommon for a man to divorce a woman and get married to someone else, and then when he was tired of that woman, to then go back to his first wife. This certificate and prohibition discouraged hasty divorces. You can't bounce from one woman to another, back to another. In these days, men had all the rights. A man could just say to his wife, I want to divorce you. And he could just leave. There's nothing she could do. 
Moses says, you write this divorce bill which protected women from brutal abandonment. These certificates kept women from being treated like property and safeguarded their rights. It was proof that the wife wasn't divorced because of her unfaithfulness. She could legally now get married to someone else, which was vital because she had no way of providing for herself alone in this culture. But divorce wasn't a command as the Pharisees argued. It was a concession, a permission. The law wasn't intended to facilitate divorce, but to restrict it. And the Pharisees were celebrating this permissive divorce, and they're asking Jesus, what do you think about this? And Jesus said, you've heard the law. Let me tell you the heart behind it. Divorce wasn't God's design for marriage. This mosaic provision for divorce was introduced in order to control a situation that was chaotic and unfair for women. One rabbi actually taught, you could get divorced if your wife put too much salt in your dinner, if she burnt the shish kebab platter, if she was disrespectful to your parents, if she wasn't as pretty as someone else you saw. Basically, you could get divorced for any reason, and this rabbi would, would teach this. In bringing up Deuteronomy 24, Jesus instead was affirming the sanctity of marriage. You don't divorce flippantly. He says the same thing in Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 5 and 19 need to be studied alongside of each other. Our verses in chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount are a brief summary of Jesus' teaching. So if you want to just flip 14 chapters later to Matthew 19, look at verse 3. Jesus is asked by the Pharisees, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, the Pharisees were attracted to that liberal rabbi's position. They loved it. You could get divorced for any reason possible. Most followed this thinking. Looks like the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus, getting Jesus to to state his more strict view to alienate him from his followers and others. Well, it was true. Jesus takes divorce seriously because he takes marriage seriously. Look at verses 4 through 6 of Matthew 19. Jesus answered them, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Divorce is serious because marriage is serious. We have to start there. The Pharisees are preoccupied with the grounds for divorce, while Jesus is preoccupied with the institution of marriage. The Pharisees, they went back to Moses to to try and prove their point. Jesus goes back even further. He goes back to the beginning. He goes to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. He says, look back there at the creation of God, and you see that marriage was God's creation. It was his invention. God made everything and said it was good, but then suddenly there's Adam. God has created this man in his image, and there's Adam, and God says, actually, it's not good for man to be alone. It doesn't appear from the text that Adam is there pacing and pouting, saying to to himself and to God, I'm lonely, I'm alone, I'm alone. If only I had a woman to help pick fruit with me and to help play squash with me, then I'd be okay. 
No, we don't get that idea. We get the idea that it was all God's plan, that marriage was God's idea, that marriage was in the mind of God. He created the woman, Eve, to be a companion to Adam. One woman and one man. It was God's design, not one man with another man, not one woman with another woman, but one man and one woman. And this man and this woman would leave their father and mother to make a commitment to each other. This is what we see at Christian weddings. In a wedding, you're not really declaring your present love. You're not saying anything about your feelings. What you're there for at the altar is to make a vow. What you're saying is, I promise. I promise to be faithful to you in sickness and in health as long as we both shall live. A wedding is a promise. Have you ever been to a wedding and heard vows that go something like this? On this day, in the presence of God and these witnesses, I promise to have and to hold you on some of the days forward. I'll love you on the better days, not the worse ones. For, the, for richer, but not for poorer. Not in sickness, but when you're in perfectly good health. I promise to love and cherish you for the rest of our lives or until you're mean to me or someone else is nicer to me, whichever comes first. No one stands up in their tuxedo or in their beautiful white red wedding dress at the altar before family and friends and God and says, with this ring, I give you most of what I have and some of who I am. Have you ever heard vows like those? Me neither. You're not talking about feelings in a covenant. You're making a promise that controls your future. You're promising your complete faithfulness. And the Bible says something miraculous happens when you commit to one another. Marriage is a divine and permanent union where two people decisively and publicly leave their parents and become one flesh with their spouse. This is amazing. It's miraculous. The Pharisees were twisting Scripture, saying Moses was commanding divorce in certain situations, but he never did. It was a concession due to the hardness of human hearts. In case we didn't understand it, Robin read for us from Malachi chapter 2 earlier where God says he hates divorce. Marriage is not something you can just walk into and out of anytime you want. God's plan for marriage is a permanent commitment. We must take marriage seriously. We must take divorce seriously, not because of the hassle it creates, not because our children will suffer or the confusion it brings. We take it seriously because Jesus takes it seriously. You're no longer two, but one flesh. And what God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus takes divorce seriously because he takes marriage seriously. So should you. That's question number one. Why is divorce serious? Well, because marriage is serious. Well, question number two, the second question we want to answer, how do we submit to what Jesus says about divorce? How do we submit to Jesus' teaching about divorce? Flip back to Matthew chapter 5 again. Look at the second verse of our two-verse section, verse 32. Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, 
makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Marriage is intended to be the lifelong union between one man and one woman. It's not to be dissolved lightly. Jesus allows for divorce on the grounds of sexual immorality. It's a sin that breaks the covenant bond. Jesus repeats this clause in Matthew chapter 19. It's not mentioned in the Gospels of Mark and Luke. Most scholars think that Matthew is simply spelling out what was implicit in the first century. After all, under the Mosaic law, adultery was punishable by death. No one would have questioned whether marital faithfulness was a just ground for divorce. As death freed the living partner to marry again, Jesus' teaching suggests that after adultery, you had the freedom of acting as if that penalty was still carried out. The wronged partner was free to marry again. But what Jesus is saying in this verse, if you divorce your wife for no cause then the wrongful divorce makes the woman commit adultery if she marries again, and anyone who then marries a divorced woman would also commit adultery. What's in view here is what I alluded to earlier. A divorced woman would normally have to remarry for the sake of food and lodging. Only in the case, though, of sexual immorality would such a remarriage not be an act of adultery itself. Jesus says divorce can be done, but it shouldn't be taken lightly can be done in cases of sexual immorality, but it shouldn't be taken lightly. Tim Keller says divorce is a bit like amputation. Jesus understands marriage to be a deep oneness. Divorce is not like taking off your shirt. It's more like cutting off your arm. When your arm is sick, at last resort, the doctor would amputate it to save your life. But no doctor rushes to amputation. It's never the first suggestion. It's the very last thing you do, and only if the disease is life-threatening. It's not something you do lightly. That's what Jesus is saying here. Incompatibility or falling out of love isn't a cause for divorce. 1 Corinthians 7 does give one more exception. The Apostle Paul would have certainly known Jesus' teaching when he wrote about a believing spouse being abandoned by an unbeliever. He says in verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 7, but if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. Divorce is also permitted if an unbelieving spouse deserts you, abandons you. But you don't divorce your spouse simply because they're not a believer. You stay with them, you love them, you pray that God would save them. Now, physical abuse has historically also been included under the banner of abandonment. It's kind of a forced abandonment. Well, these two grounds for divorce is the traditional Protestant position is written in the Westminster Confession. It's held by most, not all, but most evangelicals. And while the questions of divorce are complicated, the point is simple. Divorce is serious because marriage is serious. But there's an allowance for divorce in cases of adultery and abandonment. This isn't something you figure out on your own, though. Questions are complicated. Every situation is different. You need the church's elders and leaders walking alongside of you every step of the way. When there's repentance, in most cases, our elders would recommend the marriage continuing. God can radically redeem marriages. Repentance and reconciliation should always be the goal. 
We've seen this happen in the most desperate situations. Husband and wives coming back together after grave pain and sin and difficulties and strife. God can do the miraculous. He can restore what has been lost. And because divorce is like an amputation, we work hard at reconciliation. You may have the right to seek divorce, but it doesn't mean you have to. Divorce is permissible but not required. Well, this also brings up the question then, what about remarriage after a divorce? Romans chapter 7 verse 3 says marriage is clearly allowed after a spouse dies. But what about after a divorce? Where divorce is permissible, remarriage is also permissible. Jesus says that the one who puts away his wife except for sexual sin and marries another another, is expressly condemned as an adulterer. It appears then that the option is open for a remarriage that's not adulterous. This makes sense because 1 Corinthians 7.15 says that the offended spouse is no longer bonded or enslaved to the other person. In the first century, divorce was also synonymous with the right to remarry. The whole point of obtaining one of those divorce certificates was to be freed to remarry. But friends, when we approach these matters of divorce and remarriage, we need to remember that these situations involve real people in real situations. It involves real heartbreak. We need to be slow to judge others. We need to be quick to love those who are going through divorce or have been divorced or who are struggling with these matters. These are real people with real feelings and real emotions. This is hard. These are difficult, complicated, and emotional issues, not questions, again, to be answered in isolation, but with pastoral leadership and counseling and in prayer. We may have another question on your mind. What if I've been improperly divorced and I want to honor God? Or I've improperly divorced someone and now find myself remarried to someone else. What do I do? Well, if you're single, you should seek reconciliation with your former spouse if they're not married. If reconciliation isn't possible, you should remain single. If you're remarried, this doesn't mean you leave your current marriage. The principle is you don't compound one sin upon another. Repeated three times in 1 Corinthians 7 is to remain as you are. God doesn't want you to add to the sin of a remarriage, the sin of another divorce. Are there ways you need to make amends to an ex-spouse? If you've been divorced, you need to ask yourself the question today, is there anything I need to do to make amends, to take steps of repentance towards an ex-spouse? Do you owe child support? Do you need to ask for forgiveness from anyone, maybe from your children, maybe from your ex-spouse's parents? Is there any unfinished business you need to take care of before you see Jesus face to face? These are important questions for you to answer as you seek to submit to Jesus' teaching on divorce. Jesus takes divorce seriously because he takes marriage seriously, so should you. Divorce is serious. We need to submit to his teaching. And then question number three, final question that we want to look at today. How do we apply Jesus' teaching? How do we apply all of this to our day-to-day lives? 
We've understood divorce is serious. We want to submit to it. Now I want to give us six ways to apply the teaching. Three things not to do and three things to remember. So the first thing not to do. Number one, don't talk about divorce. If you're married with your husband and wife, don't talk about the possibility of divorce. Here's a rule of thumb. Unless there's been adultery, don't mention divorce as an option in your marriage. Speaking of divorce in your conversations is manipulative and could be emotional abuse. You don't talk about it because you don't do it. You don't tell your spouse that your vows were a mistake because God doesn't make mistakes. He's sovereign, which means you're married to who you're supposed to be married to. I moved 15 times growing up as a child. My wife's father was in the Navy and she moved about the same amount of times around the world. And we ended up at the same university we ended up at the same church. We met at an evangelism class in the year 2000. She thought my name was Leonard for the first six months, and I was 10 years older than I was. But that's okay. In God's sovereign orchestration, we met, we fell in love, and we got married. We're approaching 17 years of marriage, but it hasn't always been easy. I'm loud and obnoxious and loud. My wife is sweet and patient. And yet all of our marriages are an expression of the glory of God's sovereignty. In Acts chapter 17, God determines the exact places you will live, and he determines the exact length of your days. That means if you're married and you woke up this morning next to your spouse and you turned and looked at your spouse, you can say and feel with other confidence that your marriage was God's idea, that it's God's creation. If you're currently married, God is in control over it. You are married to the person you're supposed to be married to. Don't talk about divorce. It spits into the face of God's sovereignty. Number two, don't live as if you're divorced. You may not be technically divorced from your spouse, but are you living as if you're divorced? Many marriages dissolve because all the focus is on the children. When the kids leave the house, the husband and wife look at each other and they hardly recognize one another anymore. There was no investment in the marriage. Focus was always on the kids or on the job or even on the ministry. Are you building into your marriage? Are you in prayer with your spouse? Do you share your heart struggles? Are you physically intimate regularly with your spouse? Husbands and wives, physical intimacy is the sign of a covenant marriage. Even if there are health issues or other challenges, intimacy won't look the same for everyone. There are real obstacles, but those aren't excuses. There should be some kind of intimacy. It's not a choice. I know some husbands are refusing to initiate with their wives. You're embarrassed or lazy or selfish, meeting your own needs with pornography or some other sin. Oh, friend, if that's you, repent. If that's you, I'm talking directly to you. Repent of your sin. Pursue your wife. Pursue God and pursue your wife. Or maybe your wife is hurt because of your lack of love and care for her. Husbands, if you're sinfully demanding sex from your wife or wives, if you're using sex or withholding sex to change or get something from your husbands, repent. 
Husbands and wives, repent of your sin in the area of intimacy. And this crazy cycle of hurt and bitterness that's creeping into your hearts, humble yourselves and repent to God and apologize to one another. And married friends, you can't find an outlet for intimacy somewhere else. If it's not ha- happening in your marriage, there's a problem. If intimacy is not happening in your marriage, it's almost always indicative of a deeper issue going on. Make it a point to talk to each other about intimacy. I always tell those who I do premarital counseling with to keep talking about it, even after it tends to get awkward after a while, to keep conversing about it. Here's what this looks like practically. Husbands, I want each of you in the next one month to spend one-on-one time with your wife to talk about it. It could be on a date. It could be after the kids are asleep. And I want you to talk about intimacy. Husbands, I want you to ask your wife how she feels like it's going and how you can better serve her and respect her in this area. And then listen. Have these conversations not when you're angry about the issue, but with a calmness of heart and with a spirit of love and care. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Your task is to be faithful. Your task is to lead and to be gracious and kind. You demonstrate leadership not like a tyrant, but with tenderness. And wives, respect and submit and love your husband in a way that points him and others to Christ. Now, for some of you, the first step in this is merely getting back to living in close proximity to your spouse. Couples who are separated via geography should have a plan to get back together. And I know there are all kinds of extreme and extraneous circumstances, but there should always be a plan to get back together. You can best live out the marriage covenant when you're in the same place. Don't live as if you're divorced. Well, number three, don't speak to others like you're divorced. Don't speak to others like you're divorced. Here's how divorces start. Almost always, one spouse begins to complain about their spouse to someone of the opposite sex. And one thing leads to another, which leads to another. Now, friend, how do you talk about your spouse in public? Do you hide the fact that you're married? Do you complain about them? Do your coworkers know how much you love your husband or wife? Are there pictures on your phone or on your desk of your spouse? Do you show that to other people with a great joy in your eye? Are you modeling a godly marriage for your kids? I mean, do your kids look at your marriage and say, I want a marriage like that. I want the God who created it. How do you speak about your spouse to your kids? This is very important. I've seen kids pit their I've seen parents pit their kids against the other parent, speaking poorly of the other parent to the kids. This is horrible. Are your kids seeing a godly picture of marriage in your home? Marriage teaching is much better caught than taught. Your kids can read about it one day, but what are they seeing in their homes? A marriage full of fighting or one marked by the love of Christ? Well, number four, here's the first of three things to remember. Number four, remember there's help for you if you're hurting. Remember there's help for your marriage if it's in a state of chaos. 
Well, on Sunday night, we had an epic event that happened in Dubai that happens only once a year. It was incredible. It was amazing. It was shocking. It was rain. We had a big thunderstorm that night. Our family gathered on the couch and we looked out the window and we watched all the lightning light up the sky. As we did so, we heard a big crash outside of our place. We looked out and a huge tree lay in the parking lot. We loved this tree. It was a beautiful tree. It gave shade. It was wonderful. And it looked perfectly healthy. But then a little wind blew it over. It tipped over at the root. All its roots had come undone. This whole time, we couldn't see anything wrong with it. It looked healthy. It looked like it was thriving. And then all of a sudden, the whole thing just tipped over. I walked around the neighborhood later that night, and all the other trees were okay. The thin trees, the the sick-looking trees, the weak trees, the newly planted trees, they were all okay. But here was the biggest and most beautiful one, and it was laying dead. Well, friend, your marriage may look good on the outside. Maybe none of us would know anything was wrong. You're all smiles on Friday, but the rest of your week, your marriage is a mess. This is what an honor and shame culture is susceptible to, being a Friday-only Christian. Friends, resist the urge to care more about what other people think than what God and your own family thinks about you. Get help if your marriage is in need. Our pastors would love to meet with you. Practically, you can just walk up to any of us after the service. You can come talk to me, any of the other elders, pastors. We want to help you. We're not going to condemn you. We're not going to look down on you. We're not going to reject you or neglect you. We're going to hug you and encourage you and try to walk alongside of you in this important matter. Do what you can to help save your life and marriage. If there are really complicated issues, we can send you to Josh Smith at our counseling center. We can do any number of things, but get help. For those of you in new marriages, change and transition can be difficult. Don't think that you've stumbled upon some weird problem that no one else has ever dealt with in the history of the world. You thought your marriage was going to be bliss 100% of the time, like the romantic comedies you've seen. Well, if you're married and you don't know what I'm talking about, then praise God. But for the rest of us, we need help. There's going to be times in your marriage when you need help, all of us. There's going to be peaks. There's going to be valleys. There's going to be joys and triumphs. And there's going to be trials. There's going to be a time when you need somebody else to bear your burdens and to pick you up. Don't pretend in the church. Don't perform for the church. Instead, get protection and support and counsel from the church. And give your spouse permission to get help if needed. This is really important. I encourage my wife, Gloria, to talk to others about me. I'm not an easy person to live with. She needs help. Why would I not want the love of my life to get help? When we first moved here and I was going through the worst of my physical suffering and depression, I was detached. I was at times mean towards Gloria. And she confided in her friend and mentor, Kim. And Kim walked alongside Gloria, encouraging her, supporting her. And I loved that. I wasn't threatened by that. I loved it. And I'm thankful to Kim for the counsel and care she gave my wife. She needed that support. Urge your spouse to talk with godly friends about what goes on in their marriage. 
don't be more concerned about your reputation than the health of your relationship. There shouldn't be any secrets. Don't wait until your marriage is at its tipping point to get help. People often come to us as elders when they're so far down the road of bitterness and destruction that it's like the tree at my house. It's tipped over, the roots are undone, and it's dead. Then they come and ask for help. Don't come after the tree has fallen. By the time it's fallen, you're hurt. It's destroyed everything in its path, and it's so far down the road. Come now. Your broken marriage affects others. Get help now. Well, number five, a fifth way to protect ourselves against divorce is to remember your covenant. If you're married, remember the covenant you made with your spouse. Feelings of love come and go, but you made a covenant promise to God and to each other. I once heard author D.A. Carson share a story about an old man being interviewed about his 65 years of marriage. The interviewer asked, all this time, 65 years you've been married and you've never considered divorce? Not once? That's incredible. And the man bristled and said, divorce, 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 never. Now murder, often. <laughs> but divorce, never. Murder, yes. Divorce, no. Now, of course, that sounds a bit ridiculous, and he wasn't entirely serious. At least I don't think he was. But he's making a point. Trials will come. And at times, only a promise will hold you together. As I just alluded to, Gloria and I have had our share of stressful times with my physical pain and the handicap in my arms. There were moments during my surgeries for my nerve condition where Gloria had to cling to that promise. She had to hold on to it and love me when I was unlovable. She had to serve me when I didn't serve back. She had to pray for me. And in in her covenant-keeping love, she modeled Christ-like love for me. That's the gospel lived out because the reality is your spouse doesn't deserve your Christ-like love, but we give it because God first loved us. Love isn't about feeling warm fuzzies on the inside. It's just not. It's about being committed to God and your spouse. There's something fulfilling and freeing and beautiful about being faithful in marriage. How are you doing with this? Are you mirroring the gospel in your commitment to your spouse? Are you verbally affirming your vows to them? Singles, youth, remember the seriousness of this covenant now. Don't ever pursue a married person romantically. Don't treat another single person as if you're married to them. If you marry someone who's treating you like that, chances are they'll treat others like that too, and you'll find yourself with a one-way ticket headed toward divorce. Don't act like you're married before you're married. Do this instead. If you're single, look out for a godly man or a godly woman who shares the same commitment to Christ that you do. Find someone who loves Jesus. That friendship in Christ needs to come first. Then physical attraction, romance will flow out of that. We have it backwards. We often show interest merely because of physical attraction or romance. And then we try to figure out the other things. 
Or maybe you pursue someone because of their social class or ethnicity or family background. Now, I wonder how many potential godly spouses you've passed over because you've reversed this order. Christ-like friendship is what marriage is about. True intimacy grows out of friendship. Remember your covenant. Number six, six and the final thing this morning. If we want to protect ourselves from divorce, number six, remember your first love. Remember your first love. How do you protect yourself from divorce now? What can you do? Well, you need to know that every marriage problem is ultimately a worship problem. The number one reason you would consider divorce for the wrong reasons is because you're not worshiping Jesus. You can't be. The times I've been most unhappy with my wife have ultimately not been about her. When I've been unhappy with my wife, the reality is that I've been unhappy with God. It's always a heart issue. Here's what happens. When you're unhappy with your spouse, what you've done is this. You've elevated your spouse to the place of Messiah in your life. You try to get all your joy and happiness and security and significance and comfort from them. And when they fail you, what do you do? Well, you get angry and you try to go find someone else who you think will make you happy. But you see, all people will ultimately fail you. That's why when people get divorced once, often they get divorced again and again because they're searching for love where they will never ultimately find it. The person you're married to is a sinner and they can't be your savior. When you do that, you're demanding something from them they were never meant to give you. Unbiblical divorce happens when you make your spouse the God of your life. Friends, we've been looking at some hard things in the Sermon on the Mount. Anger, adultery, lust, divorce. These are heavy and weighty things. I'm feeling the heaviness of it. I'm sure you're feeling the heaviness of it. But do you know why Jesus can say these hard things? Do you know why he can tell you that anger and lust and divorce is not going to satisfy you? The reason he can say that is because he's so much better. By restricting adultery and divorce, it's not that Jesus is condemning joy. It's just the opposite. He condemns them because he has a way better alternative. Jesus is not a kill joy. Jesus is utterly consumed with your joy. He wants you to experience the fullness of joy. He's all about joy. He's all about your joy. From before time began, God had marriage on his mind to provide joy. A bride, the church. In his mind, there's the bride, the church, was being prepared for the bridegroom, Jesus. God had marriage on his mind in this cosmic level of Jesus and the bride, the church, and on our personal level, husbands and wives. Marriage has always been on God's mind. But there was a problem that each of us has sinned. We needed to be redeemed out of that sin. And the bridegroom, Jesus, died for his bride. He gave his very life on the cross, taking our sin upon himself to wash us of our sin and to unite us to him forever. If you think Jesus can't satisfy you, then you don't know him. You don't need to find another woman or another man. Put Jesus on the throne of your life. Jesus is the only one who will never let you go. 
He loves his bride and he never cheats her. Jesus never abandons her. He never abuses her. He always loves her, always takes her back when she wanders. He's always patient with her. He provides for her and protects her and delights in her. Jesus never divorces his bride. He never leaves her. Jesus is the only one who can satisfy you. He's the only one up to the task. When you put Jesus on the throne of your life, you can love your spouse and be faithful to your spouse even when they're unlovely. That's how a marriage flourishes. Look to Jesus. Jesus takes divorce seriously because he takes marriage seriously. So should you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would our church be filled with healthy and beautiful marriages? Would our homes be marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Oh, would Jesus be at the center of our marriages? Would husbands and wives here sacrificially love each other until death does us part? Would you be our help and our sustaining grace? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.